welcome to Dangerously Likely. I'm Caleb Smith. I'm Terrell Couch. And I'm Torrance Witherspoon. And today, we're Dangerously Likely to talk about Defund the Police. Let's go above the fold with this week's headlines. European dairy giant Arlo Foods is implementing a new business practice in which it will pay its dairy farmers extra for the milk they produce based on how many carbon-reducing activities they implement on their farms. The program covers about 20 different variables, all with the goal of cutting methane emissions from cows to electrifying their farm tractors and even turning methane into biogas. This is a really quick story for me this week, but I wanted to highlight the story because a huge problem with transitioning the world to become greener is how the current incentive structure to do that is set up. Right now, the incentive structure is not set up to become greener and to decarbonize the world. Uh, So it's kind of cool to see uh, a very large company actually taking that step to um, start changing their own system of how they do things to become greener. Now, if only we could get rid of cows. (laughs) That probably won't happen, but there's still better ways to farm with cows. Just eat Chick-fil-A. I mean, it's a part of the issue, though, overall, I think, with with implementing... um climate change action is that like we've staved off any action for so long that now it really does feel like we're asking everyone to change every part of their lives, which I think is making this increasingly more difficult, right? It's like change your car, change how we farm, change how we intake our food, change how we do like our waste, change how we buy our clothes. Like we're being asked as the consumer, which has been the problem for a very long time, right? Like being asked as the consumer to take all this individual action to have some sort of impact on the climate when our biggest offenders of, of um, emissions are entire industries in which we as a consumer have no our buying patterns and, and habits do have no effect on their producing and the way that they're emitting emissions into the um, into the, the atmosphere. So I think this is a great move because it's showing industry taking a shift and change in Arlo. And I'm in, you know, events and in, in, in the event in Shit Notre Dame, and I understand a lot of um, suppliers and Arlo is a very, very big one, especially mm-hmm. in Europe. But even Arlo is is shipped into the United States as well. I think this idea, and I've talked about this before, but this idea that it's up to the individual to do something better for the earth uh, is really just a propaganda, honestly, success from oil companies like decades ago. Mm-hmm. And like, obviously, like if we want to do something and if we can do something, yeah, I think anything helps, even if it's a small action. But the real change is going to come from big companies like this actually making those necessary changes to become greener or to decarbonize or to take fossil fuel out of the equation that they use uh, as energy. Um, Like there's a stat, it's like 71% of emissions comes from only 100 companies, not even, not even the actual billions of people that live in the world, just a hundred companies. Um, So this idea that it's the individuals like blame like blame the individual or the individual has to make up for this is ridiculous. And it's a lie. Amid public outcry for transparency, police in Grand Rapids, Michigan released videos last Wednesday that showed a white officer shoot a black man following a struggle that ensued during a traffic stop. In roughly 20 minutes of footage released by the Grand Rapids Police Department, an officer who has not been named can be seen wrestling with 26-year-old Patrick Leoya before firing his weapon into the back of Leoya's head. The video appears to show Leoya trying to gain control of the officer's stun gun during the struggle. Quote, let go of the taser. The officer can be heard shouting to Leoya. 
before firing the fatal shot and then calling for backup. The confrontation occurred at 8.11 a.m. on April 4th. This afternoon, civil rights attorney Benjamin Crump made public the findings of an independent autopsy requested by the family. At a press conference Tuesday in Detroit, Dr. Werner Spitz, a noted forensic pathologist who has been involved in several high-profile cases over the decades, said there is, quote, no question that Leoya was killed with a bullet to the back of his head. Spitz, 95, who conducted the independent autopsy at a funeral home in Michigan, also said that there are no other injuries or wounds found on his body. Attorneys said that this shows that there was no fight between Leoya and the officer. Ben Johnson, one of the family's attorneys for Leoya, said that if Leoya had been fighting, the autopsy would have showed some other injuries on him. It took the public outcry for this video to be released, and as we know with other similar situations, um, this is an incredibly it is incredibly rare that these instances result in accountability, including charges and prose prosecution of the police officer. I don't know how much either of you have had the opportunity to watch the video and read the details yet, but I'm curious what your initial thoughts were about this. I know we're getting into um, you know police brutality and, and to defund the police in our main segment today, but I wanted to kind of as an impetus to that conversation, um, this situation and what your thoughts on it were. Um, Terrell, you'll go first. Sure. Um, yeah, I, I think one thing I would caveat here is it's important to recognize that when you hear shot in the back of the head, or when you hear that he was on the ground, the, the actual image that you see is a lot harder to swallow. Um, because you see this officer with um, the individual on the ground, he's clearly on top of him. And yes, you do see a struggle. You see him kind of trying to push off and all of those things, not an excuse or a justification for what this officer did, but you do see him pull out his gun. And like my father said, when, um, we had a conversation about this, shoot him execution style with no regard or care for the humanity of it. And I say that, um, not to trigger individuals or to say that as a shock value, but really truly to help process how offensive this is. Um, but then to just further add from a personal space, um, I got into a conversation with this about my family, obviously being from Michigan, um, they can relate. And my cousin hadn't actually seen the video or knew what was going on. And it was a, a well-rounded conversation because my mother actually pushed back of, well, he knew he had a um, expired tag, so he shouldn't have gotten out of the car or he shouldn't have done this or he shouldn't have done that. And at first I was very angry and had to push back and explain like, these aren't excuses. Our justice system means that he should have been arrested, taken to court and a judge should have decided that aside. Um, when I was explaining it to a, a Caucasian colleague, I really put into perspective that my mother was born in the 1960s. She saw the first black girl go into a school with the National Guard surrounding her. She saw, she literally saw uh, Martin Luther King be shot. She watched as JFK's casket went down um, Capitol. She was predisposed to so much trauma in this country and trained that by being that model minority, you won't experience that same trauma. So when you get put in these situations and when you have these conversations, it's easier to say, well, they should have X. And I, I share that in the space because that is a thing that I don't think our country has fully grasped and have fully talked about and have owned that as black and brown individuals have to constantly 
scroll through social media and see individuals that look like us dying from a generational lens, we then have to have conversations as the youth or the younger versions with our parents to help them understand that you you were never the model minority. You can never be the model minority in this country because genuinely at the end of the day, there's no humanity in it. They can have their knee on your back and shoot you execution style and not feel remorse about it. Um, and that's just how I process this so far. I mean, I think it just continues to speak to how built up the system was for some, for this kind of result, right. Mm -hmm. Over the decades and decades and centuries, even of this country. And I think that's why it's really important for us to talk about this to fund the police stuff, because like, yeah, there's politics involved and whatnot, but the result of defund the police in the, the debate around it and what actual policy passes Congress can hopefully go a long way into reforming these systems of oppression that continue uh, to, to result in execution style murders like this. I think that, and I was listening to everything that you were saying, Terrell, because I was a lot of that I relate to, obviously, I think for the viewers, I know we are listeners, we've talked about this before, but, Terrell and I both went to undergrad in Grand Rapids, Michigan at Grand Valley State University. I've had interactions with these police. I've walked on these same streets. I've been pulled over by these police officers before. Um, so I think that this hits home in a, in a particular way um, because it's one of those situations where there's never been um, a shooting like this with a police department that I've ever interacted with. I, I have had no relation to any of them. And so in this way, it's just kind of strange because you can see, well, what if this was me? And of course, I know I likely wouldn't make those same decisions that he did, but that doesn't change anything. Like you said, Terrell, due process is the foundation of our justice system, how we get justice in, in this country. And so I think that that's a part that is missed so commonly in this conversation, which is which doesn't shock me, right? Because we lack any real ability to have nuanced conversation when it comes to these things because they're so polarizing. But that's the thing. It's like, I can agree with you and say he should have never left the car. He should have never had a struggle. He should have never run. He should have never done any of those things. But in our justice system, you should be able to do all of those things and still not die. Because none of those things was hitting the police officer, threatening the police officer, pulling a gun, pulling a, a weapon. None of it. None of that. If you got someone on the ground, on their stomach, no matter the struggle, because that is the her heroicism. That's what we're talking about. That's what you signed up for. That's why you're a hero. That's the risk you're taking. That's the respect we're giving you as a police officer. But every time you have to actually call upon that that heroicism within you to take on a difficult situation in your job as a police officer, now that heroicism is gone. Now you're in danger. Now you are the one that is, is disadvantaged in the situation, despite having the gun, despite having the bulletproof vest, despite having the training, right? That's what's really frustrating to me is that people can't understand the nuance of the two is that you can be both a hero and someone who is admirable for deciding to go into this profession while also doing, like, they are, they are imperfect humans as well, and they make mistakes, and they must be held accountable as such. Because I watched the video over and over and over again, and my thought on it is that if you can get someone on the ground, on their stomach, and enough to put a gun to the back of their head, then you clearly could have subdued them otherwise. If you're on top of them and you can shoot them in the back of the head, what were you doing in the time it took you to pull your gun out? Were you subdued? Like, were you grabbing his arms? Were you holding him down your knee? Were you like, like, like on their arms? Like, I, I just, I can't get there, and that's my problem. 
I can't figure out where his life was at risk, where he was in any danger that would have that would have merited the use of any force. I'm interested to see how this one unfolds, because as we know, that traditionally this is very hard to get a prosecution and or um, if so, uh, or get any charges and if so to prosecute. Yeah. And if I can add on one closing point, um, Michigan, from a judiciary standpoint, isn't looking super well, right? As you also saw the individuals that were um, accused of plotting to kidnap the governor be acquitted of their charges or be called in a mistrial. So uh, I bring that up because I also, speaking exactly what you highlighted, Torrance, I I personally find it hard to believe seeing that an open and shut case from the FBI, in my personal opinion, be washed by a group of jurors and say essentially that the FBI um, staged it and cornered them and, and put them in that situation. It's hard for me to believe that that same justice system is going to find justice for this family and really go after a, a cop um, in those situations. But that's just my perspective. We digress, right? Don't we always? Let's check out the international vote. European officials warn Moropol could fall within days as Russian military forces continue to escalate their assault in eastern Ukraine. On Tuesday, Moscow called for the final Ukrainian defenders who have found refuge in Azovstal, a still works plant near the Azov Sea, to surrender. Ukrainian commanders have sworn not to surrender. The retooling of Russia's strategy comes after a failed initial operation to capture Ukraine entirely. At this moment, Moscow is methodically carrying out its plan to liberate the Donetsk and Luhansk regions. Um, Both are being occupied by Russian separatists and have been used as a justification for this aggression. This five-week-long conflict has displaced some five million individuals, while Western nations are pledging additional arms and support for the Ukrainian people. We at Dangerous Likely will continue to update you, our listeners, as these horrendous actions and this conflict continues to develop. Jumping around the globe, French President Emmanuel Macron sees his lead widen against far-left candidate Marine Le Pen ahead of Sunday's runoff. And on Tuesday, Sri Lankan police fired on demonstrators, killing one and injuring 13. This escalating tension comes after weeks of protests amidst the worst economic conditions in decades for Sri Lanka. And we'll be right back. Defund the police. It's a phrase that has been uttered in what seems like every media channel since George Floyd's death and the protests that followed. You'll hear Republicans claim that Democrats want to defund the police, but Democrats will say they actually do not want to do that at all. And that message really varies amongst a lot of different (laughs) Democrats, too. Um, Specifically the ones on this podcast. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. (laughs) So what does defund the police mean? Rashawn Ray from the Brookings Institute says... Defund the police means reallocating or redirecting funding away from the police department to other government agencies funded by the local municipality. That's it. It's that simple. Defund does not mean abolish policing. 
The idea of defund the police isn't as much about defunding the police as it is about investing in social services to work with the police to respond to different emergencies. In many situations, police are a major contributing factor in why some peaceful situations turn violent. The reality is an increase in police funding is not linked with reduced crime. However, defund the police is is an unpopular message. In most major polls, the message rated poorly with voters, making it a popular attack from Republican politicians onto Democratic ones. So... What does the current presidential administration say about this? Look no further than the budget President Biden proposed last month. It had about $32 billion in new funding for law enforcement, an increase in police funding. This funding comes in the form of increased community policing programs, violence intervention programs, gun trafficking programs, and more. Despite the weaponization of the defund the police slogan by the right, it still stands that there needs to be police reform in this country. So Terrell and Torrance, I want to start the conversation with what defund the police means to you um, and how that differs from like some of the Republican talking points. Well, I want to get into the specifics, certainly. Um, of course and I want to do. make sure well, I want to make sure that we are giving our listeners the the, the facts and, and, and framing things contextually in a way that allows them to make actionable, you know, inferences and decisions. But um, well, I want to say specifically that they only put so of of the big budget that they do contribute to policing in Biden's budget. There's only 3.2 billion that is discretionary resources for state and local grants, but that 30 billion is in mandatory resources for community policing. Which so th- this is a common ground that's, that they, that the administration found with some of the more defund the police allies because in the house because that's what we're talking about right um rashawn ray from the brookings institute he's a senior fellow there i actually listened to him talk on this last year at notre dame um he did a um, like a lunch and learn conversation with my diversity equity and inclusion committee and he had mapped out kind of police brutality over the last 10 years um, and specifically looking at statistical data on how to make recommendations for reforms that were one in line with data in line with culture and and in line with with the law um but that this is what how he breaks it down right community policing is a bucket it's how are we reallocating funds to specifically cops on the beat that are that are that are not meant to be enforcing traffic stop but are meant to be interfacing with the community meeting community leaders meeting people on the block meeting people at the park because i'm not saying that that's going to solve everything i want to be very clear about that like my position is much more of a, a more radical defunding of the police in a way that that takes much more out of the police budget and more into creating programs that are specific to addressing the problems that police are currently having to address without the training or the resources to do so um while still having a police force but I think that this 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 is a really like the fact that's mandatory and that it's the very large share of the of the um, budget for policing is mandatory for community policing. I think is a really positive step forward in starting to put funds into the communities that are actually trying to create these programs to um, move away from from complete police control of these issues. Because I actually think that part of like anything with with big policy change, not being able to see what the reality looks like on the other side is a is is cause for fear for people, right? And 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 we get into that that trouble in many different issues in in our society, but that people like what's familiar to them, even if they don't like it versus an unknown that they cannot, that they cannot understand. I actually, I think you set up perfectly for my view of this conversation. And I think the best messaging ever in this regard, it comes from um, AOC. She was responding to an attack from some conservative individual. I can't recall at this moment in time. And she said it very artfully. 
for individuals who are struggling to to have an idea of what life looks like if um, police and municipalities were defunded, look no further than a suburb. Suburbs are not over-policed. Their, their police stations are normally top-notch. They have the most funding, all of these pieces. The difference there is they also have a community aspect towards it. They have after-school programs. They have um, real true understanding of jurisdiction and lines where, leaning back in Michigan, Novi knew exactly where it cut off. It knew where Livonia was, Northville, South Lyon, so forth, where Detroit is, what, six times the size of Northville or um, Novi specifically because it has such a wide sprawling piece because it's such a big um, municipality. You don't have all of these abilities to have resources invested in and have it function and have it be the space that um, its community and its citizens can grow and thrive and exist. So just leaning into your, your piece there, Torrance, I really challenge individuals when they hear these terms and when they when they think about these pieces, do think about, okay, if we were to invest more money in, let's say, a series of YMCAs, what does that look like? Oh, that looks like Birmingham. That looks like this very specific city that has a low crime rate that doesn't see over-policing that I when I do see cops, it's because of speeding and they're just camping out because they want to get tickets. Really challenge yourself to see that side, not this boogeyman in the corner that the conservative party has made when it comes to defunding the police. Yeah. I mean, defund the police to me, It's really changed, I feel like, over the past few years because it was one of the the slogan really was birthed out of the protests around George Floyd. And I say birth, I meant born. But um <laughs> uh but I I always felt like I knew what the message was. It like whether it was to actually defund police, I always thought it was let's move more resources into the things that we that we expect from police officers, but we don't actually like train them for like social services, like mental health services and whatnot. Um, and, you know, I've I've watched a lot of shows and stuff that have talked about like what happens when police enter situations that they are just not equipped for, like a mental health situation. And a lot of those turn violent because the officer just doesn't understand what is actually happening. Um, and so I've always thought that to fund the police uh, is, was really like, it, it was a good, it was a good, um, small, like slogan to chant at protests, but I always thought it actually meant like shifting a lot of those resources, um, into those social services to better equip police so that, you know, when they respond to a nonviolent call or emergency, it doesn't escalate into a violent, um, into violence. Um, I think that, so I wanted to pull on specific stuff out of some comments that Biden has made on this because it has been a shifting thing. And I know that we talked about this offline and I've been like having this internal debate around like how transparent or, or, or um, like kind of stream of thought should I be on the show about this? Because I just made a comment in the, in the above the fold about our lack of ability to have nuanced conversations. But the issue is like, just like, like, everything else in life like it's not always black and white and i want to kind of like even if it's a bit word vomity kind of put out all of these uh, 
these positions or situations that are at odds with other, right? Like, so I want to make the, the express criticism of like, I do believe that Joe Biden is not putting enough emphasis on this police reform while, all, while also understanding that the Republicans are not good faith negotiators in the Senate on this and that they rejected measures in the last proposed reform that passed the House that were accepted by the previous administration when they were talking about police reform and accepted by the Fraternal Order of Police. So in that case, I do not think that they are good faith negotiators because I think they like to have this as a, excuse me, as an issue during the midterms. But I also want to push back um, that there's, that Joe Biden is doing enough on a messaging front or on any, or an executive action front because the executive action has been stalled for quite a bit of time um, since he announced that he was going to put one out. I do want to say though, as far as how, um, how kind of close or specific to the actual defund the police playbook he is, he made comments that when he was talking, when he announced the budget that Biden said that there should be, quote, a significant amount of those alternatives that address mental health and um, social social services. He said specifically, said police departments, quote, need psychologists in the department as much as they need an extra rifles and that they, quote, need social workers engaged with them. So I think that he those kind of comments tell me that he does understand what needs to be done policy wise when it comes to this issue but i don't think and and, and, and i don't even want to over criticize that because it's fair politically i don't think he knows what to do with this with this um issue which those two things are at odds with one another right like i think that in the in the in the policy realm he is he's chasing the right thing i think he has his eye on the prize i think he has an uphill battle with 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 the, the way that congress is cut right now especially in the senate because we did pass something of the george floyd um justice and policing act through through the house then on the other side, I think that he has a messaging problem because politically he knows that this is kind of a hot potato and it's volatile, while also he's stabbing himself in his in, in the foot with his younger, more liberal, more left base because he's not doing enough on it or talking about it enough in a way that is consistent with their views. So it, I want to be real. I know that that could have been confusing to our listeners. I told you that I might I might ramble a little bit, but I'm just kind of like setting up like here are all the factors, some of which he has control of, some of which he doesn't. And whether I agree or disagree with him on that, I think that's important for us to see the full picture when we're making a decision or we're making any judgments of our elected leaders. I, Was I that mean, too I, crazy? No, I, I think I would just push that. I think his messaging is spot on. <laughs> and this is where I think that that distinction comes from that we were mentioning of the the party lacking cohesion here right is we're having this conversation of what could life look like if we demilitarize um the police we use those funds to go into community entities and community areas where uh, i'm echoing parts of what you shared torrents but where um you look back to 2018 and the Democratic Party had a, well, the House specifically, had a phone call where moderates were screaming at liberals saying, I'm having my explicit word handed to me because they keep beating the drum on defund the police. I can keep saying that I don't support that. But the minute I say I don't support that, another four commercials come out from the conservative think tanks. And then I have the left side of the party attacking me for not being on there. So I feel like personally in Joe Biden's state of the union, 
And with his budget, he's been able to shift that conversation of, no, we're going to fund the police, but we're going to fund them with earmarks and taglines and and caveats, if you will, of saying, no, this money isn't going to, I'll use Idaho as an example, this money isn't going towards a helicopter, but it is going towards hiring two new social workers for your department. It is going towards mandatory racial um, bias training. He's giving moderates and individuals like I guess myself in this conversation a space to say, we're still defunding the police, but we're not doing it the way you all jump to quickly. We're not doing the pull the money out and divvy it up and spread it out. What we're going to do is essentially build a grant system, give them the money and tell them, here's how you have to spend it. We're not going to be investing in you having 400 AK-47s and riot gear and all of that when you are a middle-sized city in the middle of nowhere. But we are going to have a real true comprehensive argument of actually you need $2 million to do a more um, systemic understanding and data assessment of what does your community look like? What is the population and all of those pieces? So that's the only place I would push back there of even though he's not yelling it from the rooftops, which has been an issue of this White House, I do think he's starting to build in a narrative that the Democrats haven't been able to find yet. I I think you're right. But I I also think that that goes into this cohesion piece that you're talking about, that this party is just, there's a lot of different voices in this party and a lot of different beliefs. And, you know, you have, you have Joe Manchin all the way to Bernie Sanders in the Senate and AOC in the house. And there's, I think that there is a single message and I think the White House is telling that single message that is probably in terms of how it plays with voters um, more beneficial than a random message across the party. Mm -hmm. But getting people on board with that message is going to be a really hard part because there's people who do really want to defund the police. And then there's those who don't really want to defund the police. And then there's a lot of people that I think understand that giving a different kind of funding to the police is maybe what matters more here. I also just want to highlight too, because, you know, of course, Republicans oppose um, Biden's uh, budget, but I mean, you could make an inference, just saying you could make an inference that since they oppose the budget, they actually are the ones that want to defund the police. And that's been a talking point that has come up in a few circles of the president himself has even kind of said that, um, if the conservatives are really out here saying that they don't want to defund the police, they should support my budget because this is an investment in policing. So you see that message, but the ramifications of everything that's happened since 2020 are just tethered to the Democrats for better or for worse. Well, you know what's something that I was doing some reading that something I found really interesting on the police side of this, that, so this so the director of public exec, the public executive research forum or the police executive research forum, excuse me, Chuck Wexler, who was talking to NPR was noting that um, the recent survey that they conducted saw a 45% increase in retirement over the past year. But that what was surprising was that the number one issue was quote, rebuilding community trust and public confidence. And part, I, you know, that's the only context offer here, but I'm curious to know, like, what, like, what he means, what, you know, this guy means by that, because, like, that's sort of the issue, is that 
they clearly are aware of public perception of policing. It's resulting in a lot of these retirements, and they also see what the issue specifically is. But the Fraternal Order of Police and these other police unions or, or you know, police associations are not open to any of the the, the calls and policy change that are majority supported in our country. So you want to change our, you want our public confidence to be restored in you and for our, our view of the police to be different, but you don't want to do anything to change in order to affect or impact our opinion of your, of your institution. And that to me is at complete odds with one another, right? Like, like who can in good faith say, this is an issue that we recognize upwards of 45% increase of, of retirements due to that said issue, but we don't want to do any of the things that our public want of us. Who do you serve then? Like a real question, who do you serve? I know that we ask that constantly when it comes to our elected officials because they make decisions that fly in the face of of of, of polling data for their constituents. But I mean, seriously, like the, the, it's getting out of control when I think about it too existentially, like how much our government is not representative of our people. Well, Torrance, I actually have a question for you about that. And uh, recognizing that we're not all experts, I don't know if you'll be able to answer this or not, but do you think that they understand not only so you're saying not only do they understand that what the public thinks of them but then they refuse to actually like implement policy change that would possibly help with that do you think that the reason why they don't want to is because they don't think that you should actually change policing instead you should just put more resources into other things in the community say that last part again like do you think that they don't want how like the system of policing works, they don't want to change that, but they maybe do think that like, maybe they don't necessarily disagree with what the administration is trying to do, but they don't think that like that should be added to police. They, they think that maybe should stay separate or something. I, I don't know if you have any insight into that or not. Well, I was just I was trying to read what it was. Um, I did have something. There was this entire article um, out of NPR that was that was talked with the representatives that are on police reform from the administration as well as a few a few different representatives um, from policing and one of the things that I found to be really frustrating about that is that they are they, they were calling some things non-starters such as um, changes to qualified immunity which like that's that like that's the crux right there like that's it like that's the one thing that i think that if you passed independently of any other police reform that would have that that you would see overwhelming support from from the entire democratic party and the, and the left wing of the party because it's this lack of accountability that i think really grinds people's gears um and i think that it's it's probably twofold i think that one in some communities police are underfunded like they actually don't have the, the you know the money to pay their people to to have the right resources to keep them safe, but also to patrol and protect the community. Like that's certainly true, and so I think that that's going to be something that you hear no matter what. But I also think that a lot of people in in, in law enforcement, specifically police officers on the beat, don't see the issue the same way that people on the other side do, which makes complete sense. It's almost the point altogether. Yeah. Like, you are the institution with the power. Of course, you don't see it the same way as the people who are on the receiving end of that. And I don't know how you bridge that gap. Um, because if they don't think they're doing anything wrong, then like, what is there for us to be solving? In just, their view. Just real quick, um, let's just explain what qualified immunity is. So qualified immunity is basically protects individual officers from being sued um, for their actions. 
uh, uh independently this. sued yeah 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 as so, long as they can point to some level of force or um imminent danger the power they have to which which then puts the onus on training or mm-hmm. or circumstance or the job which which nullifies any possibility to sue them specifically as an individual and not yeah. the department which a part of that problem for me is but like like i understand that right because it's a job where there's going to be inherent risk and there's going to be probably unavoidable scenarios where a police officer has to take a take action that may not even be killing anyone right that that, that they should be shielded from some sort of lawsuit right because but it's the killing, it's the murder part that I think should be the caveat to any qualified immunity if it exists. But 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 separately, I think my frustration lies in the fact that they think it's completely okay for our taxpayers to continue to pay these millions and millions of dollars in settlements to people, but not them, not their police office, police department, but the taxpayer budget, in which pe- in mo- a lot of communities is earmarked in the budget specifically for these lawsuits, meaning... There's not just a a pre- preparedness, but an expectation mm-hmm. year over year that they're going to be spending this budget on lawsuits because of wrongful doing by their own by their own people. It's the admission of guilt via the budget that they build that is the problem for me. I have, I don't necessarily want to push back here. Just just a question, but qualified immunity is not something I really support either because I think it comes. I think you're right. I think it takes away accountability, but. I can see why they might increase their budget for those kind of settlements, especially if they took that away, because then they would be sued left and right for all kinds of stuff. Well, that's a key right? point, right? Like, and for our listeners, if the qualified immunity piece isn't making sense, but you've followed news since the Trump administration, it's the same thing as Section um, 230 that impacts social media entities. It's an opportunity for social media entities to say, well, we aren't in control of what people are saying, so we can't be sold or sued for what's happening. It's kind of the same ordeal um, with policing. And I, I bring that into this because I think they are great mirrors of each other of the intent of them are is right and good, in my personal opinion. I don't love qualified immunity, but the intent is you do have a job that could potentially result in the death of someone in certain circumstances, you should be shielded from um, your own type of unjust suit because you were acting in the, the length of your profession. However, the issue with qualified immunity is it's not defined in a way that really truly gets to the crux of it. It comes to as long as a cop can say that they felt that their life was in danger or they felt some type of imminent threat, that qualified immunity can then be implied in a situation and essentially let them skirt accountability versus as we just talked about in above the fold um you have black and brown bodies being sedated and detained and still dying but they argue well i was at fear of my life but the video clearly tells you there was no reason for them to be um in fear that's where things are complicated and to your point caleb that's where i don't inherently push back on either of you about this but i do think that that policy itself could be worded in a way and reformed in a way of here's how we have a real conversation of what qualified immunity is because there, there very well could be a circumstance where a cop does have to make that life or death situation and or decision. And in those circumstances under that profession, 
I can argue and understand like, yes, qualified immunity is necessary, but when you're doing it just because this is your easy way out, that's when we need to have a more nuanced conversation. Everything's complicated. There's always gray. An issue is never black and white. There's no such thing as a binary from the by. This is what this proves. But I think that that's what like makes this whole reform conversation so frustrating for anyone who understands policy or the law, because here's the thing, like it can be so specific. The language of that law could be so specific that carves out all these other situations in which they would have qualified immunity or the specific procedures that would be taken in the case that someone is that someone is killed. Like all of the steps that would be taken to verify, you know, what happened, the evidence is taken. Like, it's called due process, motherfuckers. Like it's called due process. Like, yeah. you're like, like just because we remove qualified immunity doesn't mean that even if sued, that they would that they would lose. Like that's the thing is like we have a judicial system for a reason that allows for the evidence and the information to be sought out and clear and, and the air cleared so we can make a decision based on what actually happened or what the evidence shows us happened. Yeah. It's the fact that there's no accountability, no conversation. You're fine. Walk away. Here's your paid administrative lead. You just killed someone. Yep. You know what I mean? Like that's the issue. Mm-hmm. So in, in this idea, this messaging that our laws can't be that specific is ridiculous because they already are. They already say. are. Th- that complicated and specific for any listener who did their taxes on time you know how specific laws can be um (laughs) as it comes to a whole host of things right and um one other piece in the qualified immunity spot that we're in i mean even if you want to have a conversation not so much on removal of it or being inherently specific you can set a a qualifier of what qualifies as um what qualifies for this exemption, if you will, there can be a set of procedures of if you do feel you're in a life or death situation, you have to radio someone, you have to do X, Y, your body camera has to be on. There can be some really amazing nuances that don't put the officer at risk that provides that extra oversight and provides that extra bit of protection for them that if they were to be sued, they can bring all of these pieces in of I radioed my sergeant saying, this person has a gun, I might need to take more lethal action. I made sure my camera was on and that's when I fired. There are a lot of different ways that this could be done in such a a remarkable and robust way that can be helpful. Um, But because of the nature of our politics, these are not conversations that we're having, sadly. I sort of as a, like, I want to make sure that we touch on this before we wrapped up this conversation. So as we I mentioned before, the Biden administration has kind of been, you know, working with allies and with uh, people in the police, in the police community um, to draft a executive, an executive order that meets some of these issues um, because they're having such problem with, with the legislation. I can tell you that they are, as of the most recent update um, on April 7th, this was this was out of the Washington Post, that the parties have reached a general agreement on some key issues, including creating national standards for the accreditation of police departments and a decertification registry of officers who commit violations. Um, and that those changes are aimed at boosting accountability by ensuring basic policing standards across the country and limiting the ability of bad officers to get jobs elsewhere. That is a statement um, from Jim Pasco, the executive director of the Paternal Order of Police. So this is coming directly out of the FOP, um, but that the most contentious questions remain un- unresolved, which are such as whether the White House would call for stricter use of force standards or changes to qualified legal immunity for officers, which protects them from being sued um, as individuals over alleged misconduct. Um Law enforcement officials also have opposed efforts to make federal grant funding for local police departments contingent on those departments adopting specified reforms. 
Um, I think that it's good to see that there's some, obviously, progress here and come to an agreement on some things. But as we noted in our conversation, the most um, important ones, which are qualified immunity um, and the use of force standards, are the thing, are the sticking point, which, of course, they are because of the things that resolve in death and or accountability. So, you know, interestingly enough. So as we've obviously talked about this, this is a very difficult and complex uh, issue and that we will continue to cover and have discussions about as I don't think it's going anywhere anytime soon. We'll be right back right after this. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at dangerously underscore likely or email us at dangerouslylikely at gmail.com. Be sure to subscribe wherever you are listening for notifications of our new episodes. Take us on a tangent, Torrance. So I actually had like a lot of tangents I could have gone on today. Um, one, I guess I'll say sorry to the listeners. I've been on a bit of a unscheduled hiatus over the past few weeks. Um, this is not my tangent, but I thought I would take the time. Um, I know that you guys know I'm going to law school this fall. It's been an interesting um, situation, but I have made a decision on where I'm going to be going. Um, I'm going to be studying law at Michigan State University starting this fall. Um, I know I am, as you guys know, a Notre Dame fan. I guess I'm going to have to be a Spartan convert. Um, Luckily, those two teams do not play each other. Um, They do in football. No. Not in... in, uh, anything that matters like they're not in ac like they don't they don't play too we don't play big 10 teams unless it's an invite yeah and you guys but, will more than likely get invited by michigan state you have and before. and if we get enough michigan state and Notre Dame play i can just let you know i'll be fucking rooting for Notre Dame. <laughs> like sorry that's that's a, that's many years of of fandom that cannot just be swept under the rug but i wanted to let you guys know i'll be going to michigan state this fall and and, and that's kind of why i've been gone i've had a lot of decisions to make um but as for my tangent, keeping it Michigan, um, I am pouring all of you guys to go and check out this video today. Um, state Senator Mallory McMorrow, um, she is the state senator from the 13th district in Michigan, representing Royal Oak area. Um, and she um, had just such a beautiful and powerful speech today on the, on the floor of the state Senate in Michigan um, in response to one of her, one of the other Republican state um, senators, a woman sending out a um a fundraising email specifically calling out Senator McMorrow um, by name, saying that she's a groomer, that she's a pedophile, that she supports pedophiles um, because of her support for obviously a pro LGBTQ plus bill um, in the Michigan state Senate. They are also trying to pass their own very own evil Nazi fucking version of, of the don't say gay bill. Um, And she in, 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 in so many other words, I really, really implore you to, to go look up this video on her Twitter. Her name is Mallory McMorrow. She is um, a Michigan State Senator. She talks about how processing seeing that email and what that meant and how she could respond and wondering, I'm a white, straight, Christian mom from the suburbs. Why could they possibly be coming after me? And she says, well... Because I'm exactly the person that the, exactly the person that they don't think is going to stand up for this exact thing. That's going to agree with them. I'm a white, straight Christian mom from the suburbs, and I support all of these. All of you know, I I understand that you know supporting LGBT, LGBTQ plus kids and trans kids does not make you a groomer, and that it doesn't, and that knowing that um, 
you know, slavery existed is not the shame of white people, but it's something that we must that we must be held accountable for for the actions of the future. Like she just gives us a really incredible speech, basically saying, "I'm the person you think should look that should be on their side. I'm the person who looks like, who lives like, who acts like the people who should be on their side." But you're wrong because you can be straight, you can be white, you can be a mother from the suburbs who's also a Christian and understand that all of these issues are real and that being a Christian is, a, is about being in community and being in service of others. It just gives us such a beautiful speech. And and quite frankly, guys, I almost asked uh, if we could just, you know, put the video, put the uh, speech at the end of the episode this week because I think that it was so powerful and, and so important. But I will, uh, I will make sure that our Twitter uh, retweets her tweet and that you guys can go and find it pretty easily on our Twitter um, because it's an incredible speech. I think that's something that everyone should listen to. Um, and I truly wish that I could give my tangent time to her today. So thank you, um, Senator McMorrow from the Michigan's 13th Senate district. Take us on a tangent, Caleb. Okay. So my tangent should be pretty short today. I, that's um, first. No. Um, as, as Terrell just likes to shit talk period. I know he does. He really Correct. does. As listeners may know, I like to talk about climate and business, and today I'd be remiss if I uh, didn't talk about this whole Twitter fuckery with Elon Musk. Fuck that guy. (laughs) Fuck that guy. For real. Fuck that guy. (laughs) Look, look, you know what? I I don't know really how I feel about about Elon thinking he can buy Twitter out here. Um, It's a bunch of malarkey. (laughs) <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I mean the whole situation is a bunch of malarkey and i kind of look at it and i kind of laugh and i'm it's pretty interesting watching like him trying to take over twitter at like i don't know honestly he's calling his price a premium and it is to where twitter is right now but I don't, if anyone's following this it's like kind of not it's kind of not because the, the stocks have hit 70 dollars a share this year so yeah and but the twitter um the twitter board though did take a poison pill strategy, which they basically like dump dump shares into more share shareholders that aren't Elon or whoever reaches fifteen percent first this year. It's I don't know. It's it's wild watching this unfold. It's really fun. There's it's really fun. <laughs> I mean, it is. And then Elon has some interesting ideas about how Twitter should be ran and what free speech is. And I don't think he remembers when Twitter first began because it is, was exactly what he was thinking or what he wanted to be. And you have to adapt and build rules for speech because yeah, you, as a lot of social media company companies know, it can't just be a free speech haven. It actually, it, a lot of studies actually show that it just pulls in like kind of all the bad actors and pushes out all the good actors and makes the platform nasty and gross. Um, but regardless of all of that, you know, it's, I'm enjoying a lot reading like Twitter comments and stuff of people who just really don't understand how business works. And like, look, I'm not going to like go out there and judge you for it, but Twitter is such a fascinating place where you can just go on and say what you think as so matter of fact, like, you know, it and just be so wrong. And so it's just funny to laugh at a lot of people who are like, Musk can't actually do that. And I'm like, no, like businesses do this kind of hostile takeover all the time. They can make an offer. They can do that. Um, <laughs> like so there's some people who claimed it was illegal. I'm like, I'm like, look, like, like we can all disagree that a single person has enough money to buy a $40 billion company. Um, but it's perfectly legal to do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I've just had, I've just had an interesting, I don't know. It, it's been a, a nice little pastime. Um, 
in between school and, and work and stuff to uh, just, I don't know, go on Twitter and look at all the people thinking they knowing exactly what they say. And they're just so wrong. Even Musk is wrong in some respect. So anyways, I think shocker. This, uh... <laughs> it's like the man's been wrong many a times. <laughs> Terrell, I think you should take us on a tangent. I'll keep it short and sweet. Um, NBA's back. We're in the playoffs. They're amazing. And for the first time in history, only two teams in the West are um, have ever won a title. The East is highly competitive. You're seeing a lot of young talent grow um, purely because one of my co-hosts is a Notre Dame and Michigan State fan. I have to give a shout out to Jordan Poole because, you know, Michigan just burst the best. Um don't be pushing me into this. This like, I'm going to school there. I hadn't even paid my. Well, actually, I've already paid some money to the institution. I was going <laughs> to say, yeah, I can't, don't be calling me a Spartan so quickly, okay? I am, I am trying to to adapt to this new identity that I have to take on, okay? That you have to take on. It's okay. Irish in my blood, Irish to the death. Okay, end it, of story. Even worse. It's okay. You're our favorite Spartan, Torrance. Mm, I mean, I, I do I like Caleb Gretchen Moore. Whitmer a lot, so that's hard for me to even say. She is an MSU alum. She is. (laughs) People make poor decisions. Um, But NBA's back. It's so awesome to watch. I'm so excited. I I know I've been talking about sports a lot in my tangent, but um, my family is really big on basketball. And to see no super team really in the conversation anymore, to see that ideology die has been really refreshing. And just to see my favorite team killing it, i.e. the Warriors. But that's all I got. AKA a super team. Yeah, you also have to you have to you have to bring up sports because this is how they remember, oh yeah guys, he's definitely bisexual. (laughs) I don't think anyone questions that anymore. (laughs) Well I think that's our show. I'm Caleb Smith. I'm Torrance Witherspoon. And I'm Terrell Couch. And we're dangerously like dangerously likely to see you next week. See you next week. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.